My name is Pablo Zarco. I'm uh, originally from Spain. I arrived in here in Australia and uh, started working at the University of Melbourne one year ago. And uh, the reason why I came here is to establish a remote sensing and precision agriculture laboratory as part of a joint appointment as a professor between the Melbourne School of uh, Engineering and the School of Agriculture and Food. Remote sensing, what does that mean? Does that mean you've got a fleet of drones taking data about crops? Remote sensing is anything that we do to get information about crops uh, or about any vegetation, soils or anything that we have around us but without touching physically uh, to or with the object that we are trying to collect data from. What sort of data do you collect? What are the important parameters for sensing your crops? Yeah, so definitely uh, it's important to identify which are the critical things that we need to do using remote sensing methods and the scale and uh, how much we can do depends on the type of instruments, the type of sensors and cameras that we operate and that can be done at uh, close range uh, or with drones or with airborne manned aircraft or even with satellites and we can detect uh, stress at early stages. How do you detect stress? Does it look different? Does it smell different? So what are the various parameters that you collect? When plants are under stress, which means that uh, they uh, are affected by a lack of water or nutrients, uh, or if they are affected by any type of disease, in that case they change the physiology, they change transpiration rates, they change photosynthesis, and they change the amount of photosynthetic pigments that uh, they have, and that can be detected by uh, specific sensors. Who's using this technology already? Different type of uh, organizations uh, worldwide are using remote sensing depending on the scale and the objectives. In the past, I worked in Europe, or, uh, also in North America, Canada, in the US, and uh, organizations which are linked with programs to detect and monitor crops are using remote sensing, but also industry. Industry and some large companies are using remote sensing as a way to do plant breeding, plant phenotyping programs, and also to use it uh, for their own, own purposes. You know how Google sends around the Google car to get Google Maps? Have you ever seen anything strange in your remote sensing? We can detect, uh, for example, things that uh, growers don't know it's happening sometimes uh, happened to us that we were flying a very large almond field in in california and uh, we flew and and we detected on the images right there in the field we detected on the images that were collected by drones some trees which were uh, apparently very well irrigated the farmer thought that that was a mistake that uh, that was not the case because he thought that uh, that part of the field was very well um, monitored in order to keep the amount of uh, water uh, for irrigation. We went there to visit it and we went with the farmer and uh, there were some water leaks. So, which means that the farmer was actually wasting water. Love that. Your work is done. You, you've earned your wage. <laughs> well, I, I think we are still in the process of trying to link with final users and with um, farmers and people who are really interested and could adopt the technology. Um, as an academic and with a focus on science and research, we would like 
here at the University of Melbourne and particularly at the School of Agriculture and Food and in engineering to develop methods that can be used by end users, growers, farmers in the field in an, on a daily basis for their own decision making rather than just uh, doing research that keeps and stays only in the academia. That's exciting to implement it and make it an everyday technology that farmers can access. How far away are we from that, do you think? There are companies that uh, that we actually have collaborated with them, making uh, projects uh, to transfer the knowledge and to transfer the methodologies that are needed. Some of these companies are already offering this type of um, products to growers, but still we need to link and to keep the contact with the companies because they are not doing sometimes the most innovative part of uh, the scientific uh, results that we can get uh, in science and we need to go together so they can always offer the latest uh, to the growers. So the research feeds into updating remote sensing technology. Wonderful. Will you be there at Dookie Day? Yes, I, I will, uh, for sure. I think it's very important to show to all people interested on this type of technologies, innovative uh, remote sensing and precision agriculture. We would like to show the type of technology that we have. We will have some information and also some um, instruments uh, in hand, including thermal cameras, multispectral cameras. We'll have some pictures as well of the airborne facility that uh, we are establishing here at the university that will be able to collect data at, for large, at large area scales uh, using some of our innovative uh, cameras. What should I look for at Dookie Day? I'd like to give away or transfer the message uh, to everyone that uh, we are doing innovative work, that uh, remote sensing technologies, precision agriculture technologies are not just ideas that uh, could be implemented or adapted, uh, adopted in the future. Um, it's, it's today that uh, we have to make an effort, everyone, in order to um, make it available to end users and to growers to make decisions. Because it's not only about profit, it's not only about how much money it will save or how much uh, production or yields or quality the grower will get. It's also about environment and environmental implications, uh, the right use of our resources, the right use of the amount of water that we can use, and the amount of nitrogen, for example, that we apply. If we apply the right amount, we will be able to be more efficient, and particularly in the future where uh, they say lack of, there will be more and more lack of water for um, agriculture. It's really important uh, that we make good decisions about how to use it properly. Will you be demonstrating some drone flights? Will you have satellite images we can see? We'll show some of the cameras that we normally install and fly on board drones and the um, airborne facility. We'll have a live demo of a thermal camera collecting data and uh, images so when people approach they will see themselves as uh, in, in thermal, in temperature, which is the same thing that we use to monitor crops and to detect uh, stress and to detect uh, problems in, in plants. We'll have also a demonstration with a company that uh, we collaborate with that uh, will be flying drones uh, sometimes during the morning. Pablo, thanks for talking to us. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I hope uh, we'll see you all at Dookie Day.
Hi, um, my name is Alexis Pang. I'm in the School of Agriculture and Food. I'm a soil scientist and uh, primarily my uh, expertise area is in soil erosion and soil hydrology. Um, but I also have a background in uh, GIS and uh, remote sensing as well. So explain a bit more about that. How does the GIS fit in with the soil science? So GIS refers to geographical information systems and uh, remote sensing basically uh, refers to any method that enables you to observe a target or area of interest from a distance. And normally when you talk about uh, remote sensing, it conjures up images of satellite imagery as well as, but these days you also can get very good images from uh, multispectral and hyperspectral uh, sensors and cameras as well, uh, you know, mounting stuff on drones and uh, on aeroplanes and so on and so forth. So um, geographical information systems uh, essentially allow us to um, plot or map variability, say for example of soils over a paddock. We know that soils can be highly variable over even a single paddock and that can actually severely affect crop growth and ultimately yields as well for the farmer. So for the farmer it's about knowing even on a single field how things are going and you know so that's valuable information. What kind of other information does that give the farmer you know as a tool to work with? Oh yeah so I think being able to map out and visualize the the variability is already a very big step. Obviously uh, in many cases the farmer him or herself, also knows how the yield would actually vary uh, with each uh, season within a paddock or you know, across, even across different paddocks. So I think with that information uh, on hand and being able to see how things vary over an area, uh, then the farmer is actually uh, able to uh, investigate what are the reasons for variation in yield. Why, why is this part of the paddock performing poorly? Is it due to, say, um, soil pH? Is it due to water logging? or is it losing uh, too much water? So that's the variability we're talking about. So it allow, enables the, the farmer to, to investigate further, and also it allows him to make some decisions on the farm, either to increase the yield overall for the paddock, increase the productivity, or to deal with, uh, basically to deal with some of the issues that may be happening in that part of the paddock. So that spatial variability uh, is a very important aspect of um, well, at least in uh, broadacre and horticultural production, that um, is very valuable information for the farmer to work with. You've obviously started doing this kind of work for a little while now at Dookie. Have you sort of branched out with other in-location spots? Yeah, there's some work being done at uh, Dookie, obviously. I've also worked with a friend at CSIRO. We basically did our PhD around the same time. And so uh, we're looking at different paddocks uh, in different parts of Australia. So that's a much sort of broader scale work that we're doing. So we're looking at paddocks in uh, New South Wales, um, in Victoria itself, but also um, up in uh, Queensland. So those are wheat growing uh, paddocks. So that's one uh, example of how we're looking at different things. How have you been getting your uh, data and remote sensing? Primarily, a lot of data and a lot of information can be obtained from satellite imagery. Uh, and these days, there are so many different platforms and sensors that have gone up to space. And uh, we're no longer looking at uh, single satellite sensors these days. You're looking at 
basically swarms of satellites with uh, the same or similar sensors so that there's that sort of built-in redundancy in, in the platform that you actually set up. Another sort of sensing that I, I work on, uh, which is a bit of a pet project and passion of mine, is uh, also to develop low-cost sensors that can be used both by producers in the developed world but also producers in the developing world as well where cost is a huge issue uh, for adoption of uh, technologies that can really aid um, farmers. So um, one of the projects that we have, uh, well, initial collaboration meetings that we have had has been with the University of Manchester and uh, we've had various academic exchanges. We've been working out how to actually collaborate and synergize our expertise to work towards developing these low-cost sensors that can be scaled up, scaled out and proliferated rapidly. What does a low-cost sensor, what size and what's it made up of if it's, if it's kind of aiming for that low-cost factor? Yeah, well, um, obviously any sensor or device would be uh, made up of uh, widely available low-cost components and materials. So, for example, LEDs, uh, sensors, say infrared uh, sensors and uh, those sorts of components and also creating that sort of control or semi-control em environments in which you can get quite clean data or looking at ways in which data can be cleaned up as it comes in. So, and also based on the science around understanding spectral um, electromagnetic spectrum, spectral responses from plants, uh, you can target specific uh, wavelengths along the electromagnetic spectrum to extract the information of the plant or the soil that you are uh, you want to find out. So when based on our, our science, if we can understand now that we understand certain wavelengths are useful, we don't need to actually have sensors that look at the entire spectrum of wavelengths, but we can uh, focus on specific wavelengths. All right, let's bring it back to Dookie. So what can people expect if they um, rock up to your spot on, the, on Dookie and what, what can they do? Yeah, okay, so um, at Dookie, uh, what I'm uh, looking after is um, within the precinct of Transform by Technology is uh, how we are actually doing teaching and learning in uh, precision agriculture. So uh, I'm the coordinator of the third year subject, undergraduate subject, uh, applications in precision agriculture. And so what I'd like to, uh, I guess, uh, tell people who, who come to our booth is that, um, you know, amidst all this technology, we're actually having a very strong teaching and learning and educational element to what we do here at Melbourne. So we, this, this uh, precision agriculture subject is, uh, is uh, the first of its kind in uh, the Bachelor of Agriculture. And I think this is a, a good start in which we start to um, prepare students to actually hit the ground running when they go out into the workforce, uh, equipped with some of the skills, being able to work with uh, remotely sensed imagery, uh, information from whether it's drone, whether it's manned aircraft, or whether it's from satellite data. We not only do uh, like uh, precision agriculture for plants, but we also look at um, precision livestock farming. So there's a component in the subject that actually looks at how can we actually monitor um, animals. So in our case, we look at the dairy cows and how they are producing, how much milk they're producing, what is the 
quality of the milk, fat protein content. I mean, that's a really quite a different uh, angle on precision agriculture. So whereas in cropping, you have sort of variability of soils and, and uh, how, the, how the plant actually performs in the paddock. But here we're looking at individual animals, but it's very, very interesting. Okay, so you can see how wilted they are. Right, so that, that's the effect we're trying to achieve. So that was a little bit longer treatment but it still is what we're chasing after. So it's a wilting process. It actually fractures all the cells inside the plant and it won't recover from that at all. My name is Graham Brody. I work for the Faculty of Veterinary and Agricultural Sciences and uh, I'm based at the Dookie campus up in northeastern Victoria. Now you're known to everyone as the microwave weeds guy. I am indeed, yeah. Sometimes referred to as the microwave man. Microwave man, what does microwaving weeds mean? Well, it means we've got an alternative to be able to control weeds. And that's a big issue because so many weeds nowadays are resistant to herbicides. And there's been some concerns about a herbicide and the amount of herbicide chemical that's in our environment for a while now. If I recall, microwaves work by boiling up the little water molecules inside cells. It does. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, so when we microwave a plant, then it overheats the water that's in the cells of the plant. This creates steam explosions which rupture the cells and the, and the plant won't recover from that kind of damage. But hang on, that's every plant, isn't it? Not just the weeds. That's correct, yeah. So if we want to kill a particular plant, we need to focus the microwave energy onto it. And that's what I've been working on, is developing devices that can focus that energy. Oh, so it's a seek and destruct the naughty plants. To some extent, yes. Well, certainly to try to keep the microwaves where they belong is probably the best way to describe it. What do you love about working at Dookie Campus? Uh, Dookie Campus is a, a rural campus. It's a, a 2,500 hectare research farm, and it gives me opportunity to be able to try things out in the field, and that's been pretty important for the development of this technology. You mean you use the Dookie Campus as a living laboratory? Indeed we do, and that's exactly right. And it's ideally suited to that as well, because we've got such a variety of, of soils and enterprises on the campus. What surprised you most about the success of microwaving weeds? Uh, well, one of the things which was interesting is that we can treat the soil and kill the weed seed bank as well as to actually kill the weeds which have already emerged. And I can remember telling one of my students, we need to know what's possible if we plant crops into these soils. And I remember telling him specifically, if we're not causing damage to these plants that we're planting, I'll be really happy. But what we discovered was about a 30% improvement in growth. And that was pretty astonishing. That is astonishing. So this has use beyond dookie. It certainly does. So killing emerged weeds is important for broadacre, and that's probably where that will fit. But for some other high-value horticultural activities, they treat their soil as a matter of course to reduce pathogens and to stop weed growth. And microwave treatment can actually achieve that as well without any of the withholding uh, issues that we need to do for soil fumigation. So as soon as the soil cools, you can go back onto the site and start planting. So are others using this now? Uh, not really. Yeah, there's been some, some splattered research around the world, which I'm aware of, but nothing which has sort of achieved anything which is close to commercialisation. But I think we're getting there. Can I go to my local rural hardware store and buy a weed microwaver? Not quite yet, but we're certainly working on a design. And in fact, I've got a meeting later today to try and sort some of that out. 
gosh, do you reckon it'll be the size of a lawnmower? Yes, or it could be a wand with a backpack so you can actually focus on an individual weed in your garden and, and zap it. If I'm at it dookie day, what should I look for to know that I've found Microwave Man? Well, I'm going to be set up with my prototype trailer, which is going to be set up in one of the car parks, and I'll be demonstrating there weed treatment, so actual living weeds, and people can watch them wilt underneath the microwave field, and I'll also be showing them how we can treat the soil as well, and they'll be able to feel how hot the soil gets. So don't be a shrinking violet, watch a weed wilt. Correct. Yeah, that's very nice. <laughs> but yeah, you can certainly do that. And you can see the weeds wilt in real time. And farmers get pretty excited about that because they like to see their, their pests suffer. I think I'd get excited about that too. Mm. Weeds are introduced, aren't they? Many of them are. And that's, that's part of the problem is they're basically a plant in the wrong place. And unfortunately, the wrong place often interferes with our food production. They've got to go. Graham Brody, thank you. But what it does do is it, it actually gets rid of that seed bank, which is the biggest problem with weeds. So please don't be a shrinking violet, but come and watch some weeds wilt.